Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to Season 2 of the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast, and I'm excited to introduce you to Jeff Morrill today. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He co-founded Planet Subaru, which he coins as, quote, your undealership in 1998, and he built it into one of the most successful privately held car dealerships in the United States. Jeff later started other businesses in the automotive retail, real estate, telecommunications, and insurance that have generated a very big number that we'll let him say in annual revenue. His achievements in building profitable and ethical companies have been featured in a variety of national media, including USA Today, Entrepreneur Magazine, The Boston Globe, Automotive News, and several others. Jeff is also the author of Profit Wise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing, and he donates all the income from his book. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. I'm delighted to find yet another heart-centered leader. I know that you live on a beautiful mountain in Virginia. I saw the picture that you call the higher ground. So delighted that you took time out to speak with us today and excited to highlight what you bring to heart-centered leadership. Yeah, I think um, it's this is such an under-discussed part of being a business person that, that I think we're really gonna enjoy this, this time together today. Well, I agree with you and We are now in season two. We've been chatting about this for over a year. So I'm ready to ask you my first leadership question if you're ready to go. Ready to go. What do you feel and think your leadership, being that heart-centered leader, how do you think and feel that you've made a difference? I guess the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And... I would gauge any success that I think I've achieved in that area by looking around me and looking at the results obtained by the people who have hitched their wagon to my star. So we opened in 1998, the first business. My brother and I moved up from Virginia to Boston, Massachusetts to buy a bankrupt super dealership. And there were about 15 people that were unemployed as a result of that bankruptcy. And we changed their lives immediately by putting them back to work. We're now at about 120 people enterprise-wide. And when I look at my most proud accomplishment, I'd like to think that, that all these people that, that have joined me in this adventure are much better off for it. They have a, a career path. They, they get to come to work every day with people who care a lot about their ability to develop into the best professional and the best person that, that each of them can be. And 
we have a good time. So I think that's, that's pretty much it in a sense, a long sentence. Well, and I think we've had a lot of fun over the last year or so talking about heart-centered leadership. And I remember when I started the podcast and some leaders saying to me, it doesn't really belong in the same sentence. And it really lent time, effort, and energy into having great conversations. Why doesn't it? And we're going to get into talking about leadership and culture and You've certainly done that with the business that you turned around with your brother. So my next question, all my podcasts get, we would love to hear what imperfections that Jeff brings to his heart-centered leadership. Let's talk about something that I'm, I'm dealing with right now, and I'll, I'm going to go back a little bit in history. So I said before, the business opened in 1998. I was, I was six or seven days a week for about 10 years. And then the, the few years following that, I scaled back to, a, to five long days. I was still working really hard. And I think that, that that's just the nature of opening a business. You hear about those stories, maybe the Instagram founders come to mind, you know, a few people get together and, and sell a company that they started just a few years before for a billion dollars to Facebook. You hear those stories and they do happen, but it's it's the tiniest, smallest percentage of companies that that happens to. Most people who start businesses, you know, they they're going to be seriously committed for for a minimum of a decade, and depending on the nature of the business and the the, the luck that that finds them or doesn't find them, it could be could be quite a bit longer than that. So anyway, that process took a lot out of me, and I, I'm a classic burnout case. By about 2018. I was so done that I, I actually became a refugee from my own businesses. The reason why I'm talking to you today from Charlottesville, Virginia, is that this is where I live. The Boston, I mean, the businesses that we have are in Boston. But fortunately, along the way, I built a team of people who were able to run them without me. So now, to answer your question directly, the, the trouble I'm running into is that I always had seemingly inexhaustible levels of energy and motivation and meaning. Like, I really believed clearly in the mission that we were accomplishing. And, and then once it was achieved, and I had, uh, as I said before, people around me that could sustain that, then I, I entered a period where I'm like, well, what do I do now? And, and I guess the, the imperfection to put a fine point on it is that I'm not as bulletproof and and energetic and as motivated as I thought I was. I'm 49 years old and I feel a lot older. So I'm trying to recover that sense of enthusiasm and that energy. And, and I'm struggling with that. And, and one of the reasons that I was excited to write the book is that it represented a different approach professionally. And I thought that that might, might um, rekindle some of those embers and, and help uh, get that, that fire burning again. So the book I wrote is called Profit Wise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing. And I guess you could say this, this is a, an adjacent career to what I was doing. I was, I was working every day in businesses, making sure that we, we made good decisions. And, and the adjacency is that, that now I get to share those things. I get to share the secret sauce with other people. So, so I'm working through this and I'm exploring it. And, I, and, and just to be completely candid, I'm struggling with it tell you the truth. I mean, there is not a linear upward hockey stick path to many entrepreneurial journeys. And I think they vary, they go up and down. And, and mine is, is now in a, in a 
place of rediscovery. Well, I want to thank you for being so vulnerable and transparent. And I will share with you a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that I coach are in the same place as you. They have been in a, le a level and speed of hypervigilance. And then they finally stop and pause and exhale. The, kin the kingdom is built. They've put the infrastructure in from the discipline that they've had. And then they look at me and go, what am I supposed to do now? And it's like identity versus purpose. And what about just pausing and looking back at what you've built and the healthy culture and just living on your mountain, Jeff, and taking it all in and going, okay, I'm going to think about what, what the next phase is. But I think a lot of successful people, they have to pause to celebrate the wins because yes, it, you know, in a sense, it was a job for you, but you've built this beautiful fine-tuned business that runs efficiently and effectively with your brother and you've changed people's lives. You've helped a lot of families. And I do think every once in a while, whatever, whatever is up there for you says, I'm going to give you a little reprieve. And I just want you to slow down and, and reflect on, on the greatness. And then we'll find the next thing you're going to do. But that valley, it's hard to sit in that valley. When I, when I closed my case management practice, it was such a loss and people used to look at me and say, what do you mean you're grieving? You just, you, you built the successful business and you helped all these people. But then I closed it because like you, I had to get off the hamster wheel. I had to get out of that heightened hypervigilance all the time. And then when I had time to rest and catch my breath, like you're talking about, it was like, well, what am I going to do now? And I'm just going to tell you to embrace it. It's a fun time that you'll look back on and, and be glad that you have the reprieve because I started reading your book and just from how you described your leadership trajectory thus far, you're just taking time to pause and, and look at where you've come and what you've built and, and creating what's next is going to come. But that is the secret sauce. And I often use that exact phrase. So it was neat to hear you say that. And what comes out of pause and quiet clarity? Yeah, I'm reminded as you're talking about the quote by E.L. Doctorow, the novelist. And he said about driving in the fog at night that you can only see as far as your headlights but you can make it all the way to your destination that way. And I guess the, the struggle I'm having is just being comfortable with not knowing what's right around the corner. For, for much of my life, like so many driven business people, I, I had a very clear plan. I had a, a set of steps that I knew needed to be followed. And I had confidence that if we did those things, that, that success would result. But now I'm, I'm having to... Um, rework the plan. And, and that's the, that's the challenge. But as you point out, that's, that's the adventure too. And I'm trying to enjoy it. It's, it's the joy in the journey and it's a fun place to be. I'm going to look forward to seeing, to seeing where you go next. My third question, who is a leader or a mentor that inspires you to be a better leader and why? 
the climate activist Greta Thunberg is so inspirational to me. And I'm impressed on so many levels. And I'll start with, with just the disadvantages that she has had to overcome. She's on the autism spectrum. And perhaps I, I would have been diagnosed somewhere along that way as a, a child. I was pretty strange myself. And maybe I'm still on it all these years later. But, but I think that her success would never have been predicted by the, the things that she's needed to overcome. But instead, what she's done is she's made the most of the platform she has available. So she's not a politician and she knows that. So she has no real power in a traditional institutional sense. But as a digital native, she's come to understand that, that the power of her ideas, if she shares them articulately and convincingly with people, that she can create the change she wants to see in the world by doing it that way. And, and so her effectiveness is really powerful and inspiring to me. Another thing is just her clarity of conviction. Like she sees like with respect to, to eating a vegetarian diet, that the facts are on, on the side of vegetarianism. You know, it's, is it hard? Yes. Do you have to give up um, pleasurable sensations at, at dinner time? Yes. But, but primary to her, are, are the values that, that she has and she's willing to, to accept the sacrifices that come along with those values, which I, I just think is really, it's courageous. And, and for a person of, of her tender age to have arrived at, at these values and, and her effectiveness is really just outstanding, really astounding, really. No, I agree. Um, she is so articulate at such a young age and she has really brought so much value to the world at large and, and knows her place and stays in her wheelhouse and great, great example to have and not the answer I thought I was going to get from you. So very interesting. Okay. My next question, I'm so excited to ask you because you've done this beautifully with your brother. You took a business that saw a financial demise and reinvented, reinvigorated. So my question is, what is your definition of a healthy culture within an organization? I like to think of culture as what your people do when management isn't watching. So a healthy culture to me, if you use that definition, is one that is functional and functions because the structure of the organization supports people taking care of each other and looking out for the needs of the customer and considering the impact of their decisions on the business and other people. And it's the ability of a team to... to consider all of those stakeholders in the business and and to have the incentive structure aligned with that so that making the right decision actually puts money in their pocket over the long term you know it's a it's a service manager for example in one of our retail automotive dealerships that can say you know i'm going to be here 10 years from now because this is the kind of place that that um, rewards loyalty and and creates 
long-term career paths for people. So maybe I should design the systems that we have not to maximize the pay plan for this month, but to make it so that I can earn a really good living over the long term. So if I have an upset customer that, that maybe we didn't do the job as well as the customer expected, or we just, we just screwed it up, which doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Maybe we need just to refund the entire cost of the repair, which is going to hurt this month. You know, if it's a, if it's an expensive engine repair or something like that, but, but to retain that customer and, and to signal to the rest of the team that, that these are the values that are important to the company, then that's, that's worth it. So I think that's, that captures it. Well, and I also want to add on that it was the decision and the behavior of you and your brother to purchase that dealership to re-employ those 15 people, which changed the trajectory of their lives and their families. And I truly believe from what I get to observe and participate in with organizations, healthy cultures thrive when whoever is at the helm leading has a really amazing behavior and outlook and they share their vision. And when you share the vision, you then end up having a staff that wants to carry that vision out with you. And it all comes back to that behavior of the leader. So again, kudos to you and your brother for what you've done with that dealership, but you've also done it in other sectors. And it's just like a default for you. And I think it's something you should be super proud of because not all leaders choose to lead in that way. Yeah, thank you. I think these are that, that paradox is what we're describing that I tried to illuminate and explore in, in my book, ProfitWise, where, where I talk about how people expect that, that hewing to these, these good values is somehow contradictory to the mission of, of earning profit. You have to be more aggressive, more ruthless. You have to uh, see the world in a, in a zero-sum game philosophy to really succeed in business. And I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, we've, the number that you left off at the beginnings, we, we, we have over $100 million in annual revenue is the number. And, and I, don't, I don't throw that number out there to brag, but just to suggest that you can operate businesses this way and do really well. And, and I argue in the book that I think you can do better. When I see these private equity firms tearing up companies, selling off the parts, blowing apart institutions that have been in place for, for decades, you know, harming entire communities by closing down the manufacturing plants and offshoring the, the production, I'm thinking these are the best and brightest people in our society in terms of their prior education and the capital they have available to them. Is this, is this really the best they can do? And my answer is no. They make a lot of money. I think they can make more looking at the long term and trying to find a way to make sure that more people win. Because when you make sure other people around you are winning, they're much more likely to, to come to your aid to try to help you keep winning. And that's certainly been the case in our businesses. And I have a model that, that proves the point that I make in the book. Absolutely. It's, it's the only way. It's, it's the heart-centered way, Jeff. Sure enough. Okay, I know you're anticipating my rapid fab four. So here they come. 
First question, what is something people get wrong about you? I think you may have noticed I have a, a flat affect personally. My dad calls it low amplitude charisma because he's actually a little the same way. Maybe I inherited it from him, either from the nature or the nurture. And my entire life, I've been underestimated for my passion level because people see this calm person and they think that there's, there's no fire inside. And the mistake I think they're making is that they assume that, that I need to be you know, throwing things across the room or flailing my arms or yelling and screaming to demonstrate passion. I think the common understanding of what passion is, is not especially thoughtful or deep. And, and I would uh, invite everyone to think about passion in a broader way, which is, as I said before, the proof of the puddings in the eating. You know, how, is, how does a person manifest it in terms of their, their fidelity to their values and their willingness to, to wake up early and, and go to bed late and work really hard in between to put those values to work in your own life? I'll tell you what I love about that answer is as an executive coach, I, I pride myself on helping all leaders review things with equanimity, which is what you do. And when you have that mental composure and calmness, it's just an invitation for clarity. And we don't all have to be cheerleaders to have enthusiasm. I like to give people a safe place to, in terms of our, our management team or even anyone in our organizations, when I want them to know that they can bring me bad news and I can handle it. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get upset, but I'm not going to make them suffer because I'm emotionally regulated to the point where I, I want to contain that energy in a way that doesn't make them suffer as a result of them doing what they need to do. So yeah, I appreciate that. That's a gift. Well done. Okay. Second question. Who is a woman leader that you look up to and why? Well, I mentioned Greta Thunberg earlier. Um, she's my go-to, just gen- regardless of gender. Think of another one. I, I like, this is a very personal example for me. Our service manager is a woman. Her name's Krista Collins. And like most of the members of our team, she joined us in an entry-level capacity. We like to bring people in at entry-level positions uh, so that we can grow, grow our own. I mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier, our slogan is you're on dealership. And that, that, that thread runs through everything we do. We like to be the alternative to the typical dealership. And if we just hire uh, retreads, if you will, from other dealerships, then we're going to import their bad habits. We like to start people um, at any age, but in entry-level positions, and then grow them and let the cream rise to the top. And she joined us as a... Um, I guess a receptionist. I mean, perhaps the the uh, least compensated position on our on our service team, and she's worked herself up to to become a service manager. And and what I admire about her is is the blending she does of traditionally masculine and female traits. So we have prejudices and understandings and a conception of what a masculine trait is and what a feminine trait is. And I'll give you an example, like. 
it, within that framework, we tend to think of, of masculine as like strong. And we think of feminine as compassionate. And she just threw the entire framework out and decided to pick and choose like a smorgasbord of the qualities that made the most sense for her. So she has some, some pretty grumpy old technicians, um, many of them men, although we have quite a few women technicians now too. And, and she, can, she can exert authority in, in a uniquely effective way. And, and I really admire her ability to, to break the stereotypes and break the molds there. Love that. And something I haven't told you is I'm married to someone who runs an automotive repair business. And in Canada, we're not yet seeing a lot of automotive technicians. So I'm happy to hear that you've got as many as you do on staff and, and what a lovely dedication and observation about Krista. You're going to, you're going to have to have her listen to the show so she can hear that little bit of feedback and kudos. Sure enough. And I, I should credit her too. We have currently, we had as recently as a few weeks ago, five female technicians, which is more than any other dealership in the United States. It's, it's unusual. Only about 1% of technicians in the United States are females, but it was her vision. She figured out a way she, she recognized, well, she calls them unicorns, unicorns, which are existing female technicians. There are so few of them out there. If you run an ad for, for experienced technicians, you'll only get men. So she figured out, well, let's, let's build our own. Let's start with motivated, intelligent people. And, um, and, and so she's, she's accomplished that. I mentioned that there was, we had five, we have four now because one of them came out as trans just a few weeks ago, which I think is, is really cool. And, and we were going back to cultural and I just want to put, I just want to put a, a flag here and note that, that, that it's, that I'm really proud of our team that, that this person felt comfortable coming out this way uh, to the team. And, and it was like nothing, like the announcement was made and then everybody was just right back on the job because no one cared, which I think is really cool. So sorry to interrupt. Well, and that's amazing. And you talk about Krista, but you you modeled and led that behavior for her. You, you know, one of my heart-centered leadership qualities that I love to talk about is offering that safe, welcoming environment. So it's not that the staff didn't care, it didn't phase them. Yeah, it was if, not that, if that's not a beautiful yeah. example of equality and diversity and inclusion in the workplace, I don't know what it is. That's amazing. But you have fostered that with your brother through your leadership. You know, you've kept your vision pointed at the North Star and you're in charge of driving that ship. But because you shared your vision, created that healthy, fostered culture, that's, that's why there was... It was just like another conversation. Yeah, thank you. Oh, well done. Number three, favorite quote that really speaks to you and who you are or how you live your life? I don't know who said it, and, and I tried to find the source of it, but it's live well, do good. And the reason why that, quote appeals to me is there's a kind of a poetic haiku to it you know four words say so much but it it resonates with me 
in terms of giving me some insight into the meaning of my life. Like we're, we're always seeking meaning. My father, who's a school teacher, says that we are meaning seeking creatures. We're, we're designed, it seems, from, from the beginning to, to look for the purpose of what we do. And I like that live well, do good, because it's two sides of one coin. The living well part is making sure we, we, or in my case, I make the most of all the blessings that have, have been made available to me in life, that I'm, that I'm really treasuring and savoring and, and making the most of my days. But that's not enough. You know, it, it can't be just Epicurean or hedonistic. The other part of it, the do good, is that in the process of, of living out those things that make me happy, I need to make sure that the externalities that flow from my actions, the, the consequences of my decisions and the impacts on other people are a net positive. And, and so I try to weigh decisions in my life considering both of those factors. There are times when I'll see something that really needs to be done to serve society, like running for office, and I won't do it because it would violate the first half of living well, because it's just not for me. I think it would, it would be a contribution, and I really value the public service that politicians and elected officials render to the community. That's really doing good, but it's not something that I'm prepared to do. And then, there, of course, there are other decisions that, that would uh, benefit me but I'm not willing to do because they, they don't do enough good. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, my last question for you, Jeff, is what do you want your legacy to be? I would hope that when the, the story is, is written at the very end, that there will be people that will say that their lives were changed uniquely by me being in it. In other words, that if I had not lived or walked the earth, kind of a This American, uh, what's that, that the movie that the name escapes me, it's not a movie. But basically, the, the man was taken on the tour of all the things he had accomplished that wouldn't have been um, accomplished had he not been alive. And I would hope that, that there would be some people around that would, that would be able to, to say that was the case. And, and I would hope, too, that, that the sum of everything that I had done and the mistakes that I had made was a favorable ratio. <laughs> In other words, that, that at the end of the day, the world was better off for me having been in it, you know, that I emitted carbon through the, through the home that I, that I heated and the cars that I drove and the, the products we sold, but, but that I was also um, working hard to make sure that the the, the other decisions I made in my life more than compensated for that and other, other negative consequences of me being around. So it's a very consequentialist uh, way of looking at the world to use that, that ethical philosophy concept. Well, and I, I think in the short time that I've, I've met and chatted to you, I, I think it's important that you leave an imprint on people's hearts, both as a man and a husband and a son and a leader, which I think you've done in your multiple businesses. And I didn't want to say the annual revenue because I believe it's your story to tell and just kudos and congratulations to all that you've done. 
And it's just been a joy to spend time with you on the show today. I'm very grateful that you came on as a guest. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and thank you for the, the energy that you put into encouraging the discussion around heart-centered leadership in business, because there's, there's an accumulation of good things when people put energy behind taking care of their people and their customers and thinking about the bigger world when they make decisions in their office. Well, thank you. And I, I have to close by saying when I, when I was in that valley where you are right now and thinking, what was I going to do after case managing and eventually transitioned and packed up all my transferable skills and embraced my leadership journey to date even though I'm executive coaching, I can tell you that the case manager shows up on a regular basis. So think of the wisdom that you're going to pack up and bring into the next, the next keystone that you decide to touch and change or invent or create all of the leadership elements that you brought to all your other businesses. They will definitely show up. But what I love is the foundation of the heart-centered leadership that you have as your being and just bask, bask on that mountain in that higher ground that you've created in, in an environment to possess the clarity, because I'm sure there's something, something of greatness that's going to come out of you yet, Jeff. So I, I look forward to many continued thought-provoking conversations with you. Okay, thank you, Deb, for having me on. So thanks for joining us today on Imperfect. And we're going to put all of Jeff's contact information below with his social media, a link to his book. And we thank you for sharing your time and listening in today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.